4: I'm a feminist, but I gender my cutlery based on human societal gender-conforming norms. I think of knives as boys and forks as girls and spoons as some sort of androgynous uncle-aunt figure. Excellent.
0: Spoons are non-binary in your house.
4: Yeah, they are. I don't associate them, but knives are definitely like soldier boys and forks are like ooh curvy ladies I'm very gender normed (laughs)
0: with my cutlery do you have a big spoon little spoon idea that the big spoon is the is the boy and the little spoon is the girl
4: no not really I think of teaspoons as grandparents but I think that's because they are for like stirring up tea and adding sugar and stuff it feels very like oh we'll take care of you get your cup of tea yeah this sounds like something you should discuss with your therapist (laughs) It's very revealing, isn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm a feminist, but when I heard the news of Rebel Wilson having a girlfriend, I thought, oh, my God, I worked with her a little bit recently. I could have been her girlfriend. <laughs> I don't feel that was the message I was meant to take. Firstly, I was meant to be thrilled and happy for Rebel Wilson. Secondly, then we found out she came out because she was threatened to Ugh. be outed by a newspaper, which is absolutely horrible. And that was really what I was meant to be thinking. Firstly, amazing a thrilling queer icon, and secondly, she should have been allowed to come out in her own time. Absolutely. And instead I was thinking, why am I not her girlfriend?
4: <laughs> See, I think my instant thing would have been like, if I'd worked with her going like, oh, am, am I not being a vocal enough ally that she didn't come out to me at the time? Like, I I should have been a welcoming enough presence that she felt okay, and then you have to go, She'd only known you for half a day. I don't.
0: I think we got I thought she was fantastic she was so lovely but I don't feel any regret because the warmth of the relationship was not mirrored by a closeness that I felt she was going to confide in me (laughs) I feel she's got closer friends I
4: hope she has (laughs) yeah you're worried about her if if you are her best friend after yeah Yeah.
0: if she'd asked me to be her (laughs) bridesmaid I would have been like rebel (laughs) We've just met. But, I mean, sometimes you have an instant connection. I did think she was fantastic. She was very warm and she was very celebratory of the writers
4: and um, she was great. I'm a feminist, but I have to physically remind myself not to auto-hate Angelina Jolie because I'm so invested in Brad and Jen's relationship that I forget that they are all adults and that Jennifer and Brad don't want to be together, so... So, no. also,
0: they haven't been together a bit like Ross and Rachel for so long. They haven't been together since the noughties. I know. We need to let go.
4: I can't. And move I on. can't. And I really like Angelina Julie. I think she's incredible. But my auto response to seeing her is, oh no, I'm very cross with you. It's oh. almost like she ruined a relationship I was in. And I have to go, she did not ruin any relationships, no. Laura. And so she's not with Brad anymore, right? No, and I've never met any of the three of them. But the this amount that like I'm This sounds like another thing you should
0: it. talk to your therapist about because I feel it's indicative that you're stuck in the past. I think I should be a therapist. I'm a feminist, but I think I should be a therapist, and I've had no training. <laughs> uh, I, I just, I just think I've got an instinctive idea for it. I just a instinctive feel for it. I'm a feminist, but I get sent a lot. Of novels by women because of the guilty feminist, and I meant to read them all, and I and I want to read them all, but sometimes it is true that I don't have time to read them all, and they end up as a climbing frame for my cats, <laughs> especially my male cat Seymour. He loves he loves nothing more than sitting on a big pile of women's fiction. <laughs> Just conquering the women's fiction mountain. <laughs> I think he should be a judge. He's read more than me.
4: I felt a bit like that when you said you know, do you want to do this episode? And I immediately Googled the Women's Prize for Fiction and hadn't read any of the books on it and then had that guilty spiral of checking my Audible list and going, "Do I do listen to stuff by women though, right? Like <laughs> 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 Having to go through and Google whether Lindsay Davis was a woman and thankfully she is. Excellent. I am a feminist, but I would hate for anybody I was on holiday with to know I had pubes. Oh... <laughs> Yeah. Like I'm fine with having them the rest of the year. I like my pubes. I do nothing to get rid of them. But then the thought of being next to a pool and them being in the place where they're meant to be fills me with a cold fear and would ruin my holiday. <laughs>
0: um, I'm a feminist, but while I tell everyone my favourite writer is Toni Morrison, and she is, she is, she is definitely, like I'm obsessed with her. Don't get me wrong. I Don't get me wrong, everyone. I am obsessed with her. <laughs> My real favorite writer is Evelyn I War. I, I just, I'm sorry. I, I have a thing for like posh gay men in the 1920s. I think I am a posh gay man from the 1920s. It's just an aesthetic. It's a manner. It's an emotional coldness I go for. I don't know what to tell you. Maybe it's because I'm adopted. I like that sort of emotional distance. But then on top of that emotional distance is sometimes... An ebullience, a performative ebullience. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see where I'm going with this? Do you see where I'm going with this? I love Evil and War. And he only writes about men. And he only writes (laughs) codedly about gay men and sometimes uptight Catholic women. And uh, and I'll tell you what, I go for it. I go for it. (laughs) I'm not proud of it. Just the way I'm made, guys. Just the way I'm made. You can always pretend you thought he was a woman. He's got an androgynous first name, hasn't he? Oh, that's true, Marianne. I could actually, yes. Oh, I'm a feminist, but I've read all of *Evelyn War. To be fair, I did think he was a woman for most of the time. No one's no, no, no lying. No
5: it's the floppy fringes that do it. That's it. Mm. It's the floppy fringes. It's the whole thing. I
0: tell you, I watched the ITV. If you haven't, if young people haven't seen the ITV uh, *Brideshead Revisited* in which they film every second, every pause of the book. You haven't lived. You haven't lived. Lots of floppy head men looking out of punts, <laughs> looking into the middle distance uh, existentially. Oh, it's, it's uh, so good. And now let's see if our guests from our special episode for the Women's Prize for Fiction, have any I'm Feminist please welcome Kate Moss, no, not that one, Laura Bates
5: and Mary Ann Seagart. Hello. 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 I'm Kate Moss. I'm the founder, director of the Women's Prize for Fiction. I'm a novelist, a playwright and a campaigner, I guess, and a carer.
6: I'm Marianne Seacart. I'm chair of the judges this year for the Women's Prize for Fiction. I'm a journalist, broadcaster and author of The Authority Gap, why we still take women less seriously than men and what we can do about it.
3: I'm Laura Bates. I'm the founder of the Everyday Sexism Project and the author of Fix the System, Not the Women.
0: And we're joined by my co-host for today's show, Laura
4: Lex. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm more than fine with being just referred to as Lex for today, as we've got two Lauras, if that helps. Oh, OK. All right, Lex and Bates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a cop show, doesn't it? Yeah. It does very it does. much
0: sound like you're about to fight crime. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> but I think you're kind of mavericks. I don't think you're cops. Mm.
4: I think you One of you us just... is, and one of us likes rules. Well,
0: <laughs> I, I, can only assume, I can only assume one of you is married to the rule book, and the other one is married to vigilante Justice. Um, <laughs> now, Lex, my favorite fiction of yours appeared on Twitter. Um, (laughs) Can you briefly tell us about this? And it it has been turned into a book, hasn't it?
4: It has, yeah. My first book was Smut about Jurgen Klopp, um, which is every girl's dream, I think, to make their name in the literary world with dreaming about being married it was 2020 and I was in a Ibis hotel in Glasgow, desperately trying to avoid catching COVID right at the beginning of the pandemic. It was one week before um, England shut down. And so I was hiding in this hotel room, sort of there were no masks available and and sanitizer gel was more expensive than heroin. And so Um, I was like, well, I'll just stay in and tweet then. I'm not heading out into the sea of illness that is outside. So I just sort of thought, oh, who was that football manager that I'd seen doing a a press conference? And he'd been on this press conference and somebody asked him about COVID and he just went, well, why are you asking me? I'm not a doctor. I'm a football manager. Like, ask me questions about this. Like, stop trying to get disinformation out into the world by asking non-experts questions. And I thought, well... I don't know if I've ever heard a man not try and answer a question. I think <laughs> normally they will answer and then find out if they were qualified to answer. So, <laughs> oh, I, I sort of sat there and I wrote this whole thread dreaming about being married to a really sensible man. <laughs> and then, um, and then life just went crazy it was sort of, uh, publishers and everyone getting in touch going, will you write it as a book? And I was sitting there thinking, no, this is a very thin premise for a book that, that can't be a book. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then all my, um, sources of income dried up and I went, do you know what? Yeah, that sounds like a really
5: good book. <laughs> yeah,
4: <listen>. I will. <laughs> At the end of this, could you please read
0: some of those tweets to I these sure astoundingly brilliant literary women? Yeah, um, but that's
4: that's a meme. No, no, they all written find clever funny. stuff about the world.
0: Listen, you are the COVID era Twitter answer to Jane Austen. <laughs> in my mind, in my mind, you wrote about marriage aspirationally, but you'll also you wanted to be married to a sensible man. I'm telling you, it was very Austen, and it was very funny. Um, Kate Moss. Can I ask you, Mm. why did you start the Women's Prize for Fiction?
5: Oh, my Lord. Well, we're 27 years old now, so uh, really straightforward that although 60% of novels uh, published were written by women and 75% of novels bought were bought by women, fewer than 9% of novels ever shortlisted for any major literary prizes were by women. So there was just a straightforward numbers problem. Um, And it wasn't about women getting access to publishing, really, although certain sort of women getting access to publishing – It was about that women's work wasn't honoured, it wasn't respected, it wasn't seen as literature with a capital L. So when Roddy Doyle, bless him, for example, um, had his amazing novel, The Woman Who Walked Into Doors, all the reviewers were saying, oh, it's incredible to read a book, you know, literature about domestic violence. And we were going, hello, have you not read Wuthering (laughs) Heights? Have you not read (laughs) Pat Barker? Have you not? you know?" So it's that idea that when men write it, it's something of value that's uh, appropriate to everybody. It's a kind of neutral idea of what literature is. But when women write, it's for women and it's over there and it's kind of, you know, peripheral. And so we thought, okay, we're not a load of people to sit around and moan, we're going to do something about it. And so we set up the prize to honour and to celebrate amazing writing by women. And when I was launching it, every interview I did, they would go, so you're really angry." And I go, Do I look angry? Do I look angry? This is about celebrating women. It's not about you, men. But the worst thing was that every broadcast I did, every piece of radio, every piece of television, I went on, and then people, when we'd come off, they'd been arguing against me about why we didn't need it because, and the arguments were along these lines: if women were any good, they'd win the real prizes; mm. um, <laughs> if women were any good, they wouldn't need special pleading. All this kind of stuff. And then we'd come off air, and the person arguing against me would take their mic off and would go. We all think it's a brilliant idea, but my editor said we had to come on and speak against it. So at that moment, we knew we were onto something. And 27 years later, there have been millions of people who have engaged. 95 million people have engaged with the Women's Prize this year in terms of impressions following the pod. It's insane numbers. And it's global all over the world. And it's about diverse voices. And it's really important in these horrible, challenging times where a lot of the stuff that feminists of my generation thought was settled we're going backwards again, novels and women being out there and every year saying, you look at these incredible works by women, it matters. You've got to have some really positive stuff, women speaking for themselves, because we can't always assume that we're going to be allowed to speak for ourselves. So fiction, you stand in other people's shoes, you travel through time and space, it's about empathy, it's about enjoyment, but it also keeps saying, women's stories are human stories and they're for everybody. I
0: love that women's stories are human stories, and they certainly are. Um, it is strange that we're half the population and still niche
2: um,
0: at this point. I remember Virginia Woolf said in the early 20th century, in a 100 years' time, no one will notice if a book is written by a, a woman or a man. It'll just be a book. Um, lol. Um, <laughs> yeah. I I sometimes wonder what they'd think of where we're at now. Uh, But there is still this idea of chick lit and there's there's still this idea of uh,
4: women's business in film, in television, in books. So what makes a book literature with the capital L, I think it was referred to earlier?
5: What's literature and what's a book? Sorry,
4: forgive my ignorance.
5: Well, it's not a question of ignorance. I mean, nobody really agrees. But broadly speaking, being flippant, being someone who sits on the commercial side of stuff, Hmm. We'd all say it's just sales. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> there is still a snobbery that if a book sells a lot, it's like, oh, it can't be very good, you know, because literature has to come out of suffering. And it has to be exquisite and, you know, all of this. It's the, it's the old fashioned. It's been going for years. It's Swift or Defoe. So Defoe is the big seller and he writes, you know, bawdy, sexy stuff. And Swift is, you know, writing, you know, and he's the dean of St. Paul's and all of this kind of thing. And this has persisted. And you can see all the way through. You look at Daphne du Maurier, for example. Her reviews were, you know, this is stupid Gothic fiction. Nobody's going to want to read something. An old house that's burnt down. Nobody knows who's, you know, all of this sort of stuff. So there is a snobbery, which is what is the right kind of subject for literature. But. As someone who's paddled around this for a long time and writes big adventure stories with women heroes, but basically I was described once as somebody who writes Sex and Swords, and I think that's fairly accurate. A lot (laughs) of battles, a lot of, you know, that kind of stuff. I would say that there is a difference in intention and that in commercial fiction, I would say the story is the thing. It's about momentum and jeopardy and acceleration and that sort of page-turning What's going to happen, you know? And so when someone says to me, I couldn't put your book down, that is the reaction I want. Yeah. Does that mean that I don't care sentence by sentence about how beautifully I write or how brilliant my ideas are or are not? Of course, of course I care. But my intention is to tell a cracking good story. Whereas sometimes you could say within more literary work, and neither is better than the other. It's not about the quality of the writing. It's about the intention. With more literary work, you could perhaps say that the idea is the thing or the cadence is the thing or the music is the thing. And so I think that for me, after all these years of being a writer and obviously doing the Women's Prize, that's how I divide it. The great Margaret Atwood in her brilliant book uh, called Negotiating with the Dead, which is about being a writer. And she says, you know, there are four types of books. There are literary books that are good and literary books that are bad. And commercial books that are good and commercial books that are bad. Mm -hmm. And I think that is also the case. Does a book succeed in what it set out to do? That's, That's the only value judgment you can make. There's no such thing as a good or a bad book. There is, does it succeed in what it set out to do? So if a crime novel has no murder or no crime and no detection, it probably fails <laughs> if a beautifully reflective book has, lot, you know, a, a whole load of murders and no lovely sentences. That's probably failed. So it's about right. intention.
0: What about Dan Brown? Well, I feel like to Dan Dan he's really successful at selling books, and I guess he tells a really good story.
3: Yeah,
0: he must do because the prose. I I find it unreadable. I just can't do it. I can't get through it. I've, sorry if you're listening, Dan Brown. He's probably a huge fan of the Guilty Feminist. <laughs> um, But I just, I'm just like, so he is a success, obviously successful, very wealthy commercial writer, but he is not literary because the sentences are bleakly simple. Um, And so it's not pretty prose. Is it just not trying to be beautiful prose? Is it just trying to be a very simple book with a good story that lures people in?
5: Yeah, Dan Brown succeeds completely in what he sets out to do, which is write a cracking thriller. Right, and, that's and what same he does.
0: with sixty shades of grey. Fifty.
5: That is it is
0: not awfully <laughs> that's how much I know about fifty <laughs> shades of grey. I, <laughs> I, I can't do it. And like sixty shades, twenty shades.
5: Yeah, twenty some on how shades. Tired it felt like are. sixty to me. Honestly, I tried yeah. to get through it,
0: and I was like, "Oh, I've got through twenty shades of grey, and I just can't keep going." My amazing,
5: I, my amazing mother-in-law, who who I care for, she's nearly ninety-two now, and she, and she I gave her a copy of. <laughs> however many shades of grey, uh, mm-hmm. when it came out. And uh, I've got a picture of her reading it in her wheelchair in her dressing gown. And on page 30, she said to me, is anything going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> I said, not really, Rosie. They're just going to have a bit of slap and tickle, a bit of argy-bargy. And she went, oh, bit of house there's not much of a story. So that was it for Granny Rosie she she didn't feel there was anything in it for her should we say
4: it's funny with stuff like that though because so I've written I've just written my first novel and it's it's out next week and it's the first thing I've ever written or done where my husband hasn't been really intricately involved in the development of a stand-up show or like with the clock book I ended up running a lot past him because we had such a short publication deadline so when I'd finished it I gave it to him and I said well you you can read it but I just know you're not my demographic for it So that's why I didn't want you to read it before because I couldn't bear you not liking it while I was still doing it and he got halfway through and it's all about women it's about a women's netball team and a sort of older woman um, whose life sort of goes off the rails and uh, and he just stopped and looked up to me and he went I just can't believe anybody thinks this much <laughs> 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 that's why oh. I couldn't let you read it babe there's barely a plot as far as you're concerned there's not been a death nobody's gone to war it's just a woman having loads of thoughts <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: we do think a lot. Mm. To be fair, to be fair, what's the novel called? Laura? It's called Pivot.
4: Pivot. Yes. Okay. So it's about—is it
0: commercial or is it literary?
4: Well. Now that I know that it's got to sell a lot to be uh, commercial, I'm going to say it's literary. (laughs) 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 Turns out I do a lot of literary work, Deborah. Um, Yeah, a lot of my best work has been literary and some of
0: it's been stand-up comedy. So... Yeah, the few I, I've been very literary in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh Festival mm. early on, mm-hmm. you know, but years ago. <laughs> I, right.
5: I mean, oh hey, right, see, it works. It works for everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Um,
0: Marianne, you are the lead judge this year.
6: Uh, yes, I'm. I'm chair of the judges. It doesn't mean chair that my vote that is. Mean? It, well, it doesn't doesn't mean that I have a casting vote or anything like that. But I I have to sort of lead the judging process because somebody has to. Uh, and so.
0: For the long listing, can I I just pause there and say because somebody has to is not what a man would say. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I mean, I'm doing it because I mean, literally, uh, I'm best. Somebody has to do it, (laughs) and I was in the room at the time they needed somebody. (laughs) Really, just popped in to drop off a sandwich, (laughs) but they said, "Well, we've got nobody here to do this." I presume you were qualified. You were asked. You were delighted to be asked. You've got major skills uh, in authority. The Authority Gap that you've written. Um, Tell us uh, what drew you to
6: the role. I love reading fiction. I've always loved reading fiction. I much prefer fiction to non-fiction. Non-fiction always feels a bit like eating porridge. You know, I know it's good for me, but it's not a great pleasure. Fiction is fantastic. It just draws you in. You know, if you're reading a great novel, it sort of haunts you through the day and you're dying to
0: get back to it. And I very rarely feel that for a non-fiction book. So, People w- said that about my book, The Guilty Feminist, oh, um, okay. which is nonfiction. They said it all the time. They said, oh, all day, all I was thinking about was getting back to the book. Um, constant, they didn't really, guys. I'm just, like, <laughs> I'm just like You're looking
3: at me like, oh, wow. Uh, um,
0: no, I'm sure they did think that. Okay, Tom, cut that out because that did not work. Um,
3: continue, Marianne. Continue. <laughs>
0: So I thought,
6: okay, I am going to have to give over about six months of my life to this because it means reading an enormous number of novels. But on the other hand, the great thing was I could be sitting in my armchair in the middle of the day reading a novel and not having to feel guilty about it, not feeling like I was somehow skiving off work because this was work.
0: And what a fantastic luxury that is. Did it ruin it for you? Because anything that becomes work, you generally think, oh God, now I've got to read another book. Did at some point you go, oh, I could really do with just, you know, watching Succession?
6: Yeah. Do you know, the only, (laughs) the only exception I made to not watching TV in the last six months was watching Succession. I had to, I had to watch Succession. Uh, But yeah, I'm afraid I barely saw a friend. I barely watched TV and yeah, it did feel, sometimes it felt like a grind, but when the novel was great, I absolutely loved it. And I, so, what I've said to myself is, I'm really glad I've done that once in my life, but I wouldn't do it again because mm, no. it does six really carve well spent, an enormous though. chunk out of your life. That's
5: why we don't invite anybody back. It's like having <laughs> more than one child. Yes, to yeah. do it? But you know, I, I don't <laughs> so. think you regret it though. I think on
0: your deathbed, you'll be like, for six months, I read. Huh? Amazing fiction by women. I think you'll look back on that as time
4: well spent. Definitely. So when you have that volume of books to get through, do you differentiate between listening to them and reading them? Like, do you have to treat them all the same way? Uh, I started thinking I had to treat them all the same way and
6: I should read them all physically physically. Once I started to panic about how am I going to get all these books read in time, I realised that I had these empty hours of the day when I wasn't reading and I had to do something about that if I was driving up and down the motorway or if I was cooking or washing up or whatever. And so in the end, I would have uh, one book on Audible on the go Mm. and two physical books, one downstairs and one in the bedroom.
4: (laughs) So I was reading three (laughs) books at
6: once at all times.
4: my goodness.
6: That- and it even got and- to the point where if I went on a walk with my husband, I would say to him, "Do you know? I don't think I can spare an hour. I'm going to have to put my AirPods in and listen to a novel while we walk." He really hated that, though.
4: Oh. oh. Um,
0: well, your your sacrifice has been noted, uh, <laughs> because that is that's that's absolutely full on. Um, but what came out of it? Like, how many books did you, made you go wow that you might not have read otherwise? Well, we put 16 books on
6: the long list, and that was out of about 175 submitted. And all of those I thought, wow, about. And there were others, too, that didn't make it onto the long list that I thought, wow, about. So probably, I'm guessing about 25, I thought, these books are fantastic.
0: And do you have any idea what's going to win, or is it Secret Ballad?
6: No, we are deciding tonight, which is Monday. (laughs) And oh, I have no. So the winner has
0: not been decided.
6: No, no. Uh, we're announce- We're deciding tonight and announcing it on Wednesday. And I have no more idea than you do which is going to win.
5: And That's we so had to exciting. have the we had to have the voting very close because when I was setting the prize up, there was an active um, campaign by certain newspapers to try to wreck stuff. And so the level of keeping it discreet and keeping the decision made really, really close was important. But it's also about respecting all the authors. We sell the long list and the short list every year as a group of books. So saying to to male and female readers, just have a go. If you don't like that one, try this one. And so that's really important that In a funny sort of way, the winner is the very last thing that happens Mm. because we're celebrating all of them. And it's much easier to celebrate everybody when they're all still in the same boat, if you like.
4: That's really good because it's one of the things I always think in the stand-up world, Deborah, you know this, like with the, you go to Edinburgh and you have a really great show and then they announce the winner of the festival prize a week before the end of the festival. So when you inevitably don't win, there's just still a whole cold week of the festival (laughs) where you feel like absolute plop and and if they just announced it at midnight at the end they'd still be a winner they'd still have had a great show but everybody else wouldn't have had a week of feeling shitty and being literary
0: because I'm never nominated (laughs) so my hopes are really not up at the point where they let where the nominations come out and I'm not on the list I but although I do sometimes think maybe I could still win (laughs) <laughs> like, like when Marianne just said that we've got the long list, I thought, oh, maybe I'm on it. And I, went, <laughs> yes. I do have that moment. Even watching like the, the Tonys at home or something like that. I'm like, could it be me? You haven't been in a Broadway show and you're not there. And, <laughs> and also you're watching a clip from yesterday.
2: <laughs> uh,
0: somehow still I have the hope. I actually was in a hotel in America where there was a teen modeling um, competition going on. And I put my head in the door and I ended up sitting up the back just to see it. Because I thought, as a feminist, this is really interesting. It was really, I found it really difficult because these teens had come from all over America. And they they, they were like, we're now going to call out your number. And if your number, and I I did still go, what's my number? And I was like, "You're you're not a teenager, but I have this hope. Um, Laura, tell us mm. your association with the Women's Prize for Fiction.
3: Um, I judged the Women's Prize back in 2015 when the winner was Ali Smith's How to Be Both. And it was honestly just one of the best experiences of my whole life. I've never, ever read so much on the toilet as I did <laughs> during that period, because it, just as Marianne said, you just had have to grab every single possible moment. So I had books in the loo and books by the kettle and just books up the wazoo, really. Um, it was just books all the time um, and it was wonderful and ever since then I've you know followed the prize very closely and been a huge cheerleader and supporter of everything that it does because um, I think there's this perception or well, partly there's a general perception after Me Too everything's fine now you know there's no women aren't facing any problems anymore but particularly in publishing people often think there can't be any problems in publishing because it's quite female dominated and I just get so many stories the Everyday Sexism Project we have stories from from female authors who are being told well you you know if you write about that we're gonna have to put a really flowery cover on it because it's only going to sell to women from female authors who are at events being groped and manhandled backstage you know literally being sexually assaulted by moderators as they wait in the wings to go on at festivals women in publishing houses being sexually harassed and finding themselves pushed out um black women who are being told by a publisher we're really keen to have you but only if you're going to write a book that's about being a black woman specifically You know, it has to be about the race. And so for me, it's just so clear in my day-to-day work how vital the work of the Women's Prize still is. Yeah,
0: it feels like we are not far enough along and we need to accelerate it. Yeah. Kate, what changes have you seen specifically since you set up the Women's Prize for Fiction? What impact do you think it's had?
5: It's so difficult answering this question because it's very tempting to look at things and say, because of the Women's Prize, this has happened. Whereas, of course, we know that there are many things at play. But I would say the key things are this. What the Women's Prize has done is made it possible every year for there to be um, a kind of touch paper about discussions about writing and gender and reading and gender and how women are actively left out or neglectfully left out or not respected for their work. So that happens all the time. When I was setting it up, um, we were in a period, I'm 60 now, uh, We were, and I got the tail end of the previous generation of feminism. And then there was a very, very fallow period, and there's lots of new, wonderful, younger women, I'm looking at three of you now, who have really transformed things. But when we were setting the prize up, it was actively encouraged to not ever talk about women. The idea was that feminism had happened, and it was all successful. So if you said anything about, you know, there's a problem here because women are not doing X, Y, and Z. It was that Thatcherite idea, well, it's your fault. Because if you were any good at what you do, Mm -hmm. you you wouldn't be in this position. So it's because your work's not good enough or you're not forceful enough. So that has changed enormously. I would say the other thing that's changed is, and and God, God knows overdue, a discussion about what diversity actually means. So the idea that Some women might be published, but many, many women's voices were not being published. And that's not only race, it's age, it's class, it's ability, disability, however people define themselves, all of these things. So there is um, a much broader agenda that it's not just, you know, literature is not about white men with beards. It's about everybody's voices. And that has changed quite a lot. The international element has increased because we know You know, we were all watching the news last August. There are many countries in the world where women are not allowed to go to school now. And that's always been the case. But history is a pendulum. You know, my big new non-fiction book that comes out in the autumn is about all the women left out of history, nearly a 1,000 women. And history is a pendulum. So things get better. But we have to keep barricading sometimes and other times, just as Laura says, you know, holding the flowers... But we need to keep protecting women's position because it isn't safe forever. So I think within that, the Women's Prize has seen enormous numbers more women being honoured for literary awards. It's seen other areas of the arts, art galleries, literature, you know, in the sense of writing libretto, classical music, all of these things, sculpture, dance, all of that. Asking the same questions. You know, why is there only 3% of works in art galleries in the UK on permanent collection by women? 3%. Now, that's crazy, isn't it? Mm. So I think that's been the biggest thing, to make it possible for the conversation to always be had. And to keep saying, I think, you know, arm yourself with information. So when people say, yes, but women have taken over, one woman goes a long way. (laughs) So if there's one woman there, they go, oh, look, it's all fine. And then you say, well, yeah, but do you know actually how many percentage of this, that, and the other? So arm yourself with facts. And the Women's Prize has done, we've spent millions on research so that people have got those statistics. So the only one I'll give you now is that when I launched the prize, 9% of uh, books on the Booker Prize had ever, shortlisted, ever been by women. And now that figure is 49%. Now, we can't say the Women's Prize has done that alone. But we absolutely can say that it, once one woman puts her head above the parapet, another comes to stand next to her, and another. And
0: you're a significant part of the landscape, I would say.
5: Yes, yes. It's now one of the five most uh, recognised literary awards in the world.
0: Um, wow. Which
5: is fantastic. And it's the thing I think that has been really important about it is you know, it's very funny you mentioned even more at the beginning. Because one of my moments of thinking, do you know, I think we've done this, was in the year, third year of the Women's Prize. And we were still awarding it at the National Liberal Club. So you walked up the stairs <laughs> beneath many portraits of whiskered gentlemen um, mm-hmm. into this room. And the if there'd been social media, I don't know if I could have coped. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it wasn't social media. So it was very nasty launching the prize. The first couple of years were very bloody and a lot of personal attack and all of this kind of stuff. But what you, year was it? It was ninety six.
0: Oh, yeah. so that before was a terrible that, time.
5: Yeah, and so people had to ring up and speak, you know, and and then, you know, the papers would ring up and get my husband and he'd say, well, we're just doing supper for the children, but she can ring you back. And then the next day in the paper there'd be Moss refuses to speak. You know, we, we mm-hmm. know how it goes. We've all been victims of it. But you That was you, all Girl Power
0: and, and yeah, Nuts yeah. magazine, Zoo magazine. Yeah, yeah. That was the time, young people, if you don't remember it, most of the magazines that you could see at eye level and it was before we all had the internet, so magazines and newspapers was the way we got information. Any magazine on the front cover, it would have like some woman who's in the public eye on holiday and they would put a big red ring around her cellulite. Yeah. That, Look, she's caught on the beach and she's got cellulite. Mm. And that was a bad thing because there was absolutely no – just the idea of body positivity wasn't, you know, yeah. it was just – you know, look like Kate Moss, the other Kate Moss without an E, or, or don't go to the at beach. That. I am gorgeous. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Um, no, no, sorry. Oh yeah, my no, God. No, no, that's no, no. that's a terrible thing to say. But it was no, like no. they were <laughs> holding her up as the one mm. thing you could be.
5: But it's a really interesting thing. You know, both Marianne and Laura are incredibly important in the non fiction area of publishing, you know, books providing information about the reality of women's lives. But this week, as we record, the whole paperback top 10 in the UK. The entire paperback, not 10, is books by men. So there is still the idea, as you all have experienced, and we all know, that things about women, particularly if they star women, they have a female lead character about women, are intended for women. Somehow this is niche. Mm. Whereas that experts we're back to the men with beards. Um, And that actually, so if you want a book about dot, 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 now everybody should be reading Laura's books and Marianne's books and indeed all of your books. And one of the reasons that I've written my Women in History book is because when you say to people, do you know, no, it's a joke, isn't it? There are more statues to men named John than to women. But it's also not a joke because it is accurate. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you know, when you say that, say just imagine if it was the other way around. That's all you ever need to do, flip it. Just imagine if it was you changed the landscape backwards and mm. everybody goes, Well, wow, it's disgraceful, you know. That's
3: right. There are six hundred and fifty listed statues around the UK. Only fifteen percent of them are women, and just two of them are ever named black women.
0: Wow. I mean, oh, most of them book. are like, most of them are <laughs> Queen Victoria or nymphs. <laughs> yes, naked yeah, nymphs. most of them are naked. Yeah. yeah, most of them are naked nymphs or Queen Victoria. And again, like, you know, some people go, oh, who cares about statues? But it is just going into our all of our psyches as to who's important, it who is. deserves a plinth, who's made history happen. Who matters. You know, so that's why I'm so excited, Kate, about you know, these uh, hidden women from history that you're uncovering. Yeah, well, the, bu- the
5: book's called Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, How Women Also Built the World.
0: Wonderful. I'm I'm excited about that. Please, can you please come back on and tell us about that? I
5: would love to come back on.
0: Excellent. We want to hear all about that. Do you have
4: men on the judging panel?
5: No. We don't. Would,
4: does that... Would having a man in there, how would you feel about that? Because... I suppose in my head, I'm thinking that if it is all women making this prize, does does that slight, and I don't want to criticise, but does that slightly feel like women's stuff is just for women to judge? What no, would a man really, in that room yeah, do? Yeah, you're
5: really right. I mean, we talk about this often. We revisit it often. Um, the glib answer, which is also one I believe <laughs> is um, that when we've run out of amazing women, yeah. then we'll think
2: again, you know, uh-huh.
5: because you know, there's a hell of a lot of amazing women. But actually, it was kind of um, a clarity issue. I used to say it was about cleanness, and then it made it sound like some sort of sexual health, so I went to say clarity issue. But there have been prizes in the world before that are a male and female judging panel. And it's one of the things in Marianne's amazing campaign, Men Reading Women, which we'll talk about. But there is a very interesting thing, that women read with a great deal of equity. And what I mean by that is that women read books that they fancy whether they're written by a man or a woman, and whether or not the lead character is a man or a woman. Whereas men tend to read books in fiction, almost, you know, not exclusively, but very close to exclusively by men, and with a male protagonist. So whenever you have men and women, you end up with a very small number of women, because the men favor men and women choose both. Mm -hmm. And so since the point was to get exceptional writing by women out to male and female readers, we decided that we would just be very straightforward, that this is a prize by, for, and celebrating women for men and women everywhere. And the other prizes in this area, like the Prix Femina in France, which is judged by a male panel, you can see that there are men's voices in that mix because many of the novels by women that win almost, not always, but almost always have male protagonists. So if it's a book by a woman with a male protagonist, that's kind of okay. But if it's a female protagonist... so. The idea that a lead character is in every girl or every boy, every man, every woman, mm-hmm. holds true for women, but it doesn't hold true for men. So mm. That's fascinating. interesting. Thank you.
0: And Marianne, tell us about the campaign Kate just mentioned.
6: Yes. Uh, so this is a campaign called Men Reading Women. And when I agreed to become chair, I said I really wanted to do that this year because one of the things I uncovered in the authority gap was I did some original research to try to find out which gender read books by which gender? Which pretty much reflects what Kate has just said, which is that of the top ten best-selling books by women, which include authors like Jane Austen and Margaret Atwood as well as Jojo Moyes and Danielle Steele, only nineteen percent of their readers are men. Whereas if you look at the top ten best-selling books by men, which include Dickens and Tolkien as well as you know Lee Child and, and Stephen King it's much more evenly balanced. So that's 55% men and 45% women. And what that shows is that women are prepared to read books by men, men are much more reluctant to read books by women. And another two studies have shown that on average, women will read roughly 50-50 books written by men and by women, whereas for men, the ratio is 80-20. So that means they will read four books by a man for every book by a woman. And what we thought was guys, you're missing out. There, is, there are so many fantastic novels by women that you're not even trying and you're missing out as a result. You're only reading, you know, half the stories in the world. And it's not just that we think this is a, a shame for men. And it's not just that we think this is a shame for the female authors who aren't being read by men. But we also think that reading novels tells you all about the human condition And it breeds empathy. It allows you to understand, you know, what it's like to be, say, a young Afghan girl under the Taliban, Uh, or it could be a male cop in Chicago. But, you know, what reading novels does is allow you to understand worlds that aren't your own. And women, therefore, on average, have a much better understanding of the world because they're prepared to read books by and about men as well as books by and about women. And men could have a greater understanding of the world.
0: I think that's why we're better at writing men and women as well. I I think think that's right. You know, there's often parodies of how women are written in uh, novels by men on the internet. Hmm. Uh, And there was a film campaign that I did uh, with Gemma Arterton and Tiff Stevenson uh, that was parodying, was we had to write how we thought we'd be written by a man. But I noticed that women have no problem writing men and it's because we've been raised on stories by men with male characters so that's our norm as well so we know what it's like to be us and we know what it's like to be men because we've consumed a lot of stories and whenever men say to me how do I write women better I say watch stuff read stuff listen to stuff consume stuff written by women that's you know that's directed by women and that's that's the best way that's how we're good at it.
6: That's so right. And, you know, if you ever hear a man say, oh, women are such a mystery.
0: It's so
4: hard to understand women. Yeah. There's a really easy
0: solution. Mm, crack a book. Yeah. Crack a book. Yeah. yeah.
4: How do you all feel then? Like, I don't know, maybe Laura, like how, how do you feel about someone like Richard Osman, who's topping all the charts at the moment, having written a fiction book that is the lead character as a woman? Like, is that great? Or is it a bit of a like, hey, that's annoying that it's a male author that's um, that's, that's that chart topper. How do you feel there?
3: No, I don't. I mean, I think that's great. I think if we start dissuading men from writing about women, we'll be going even further backwards. Um, but I think that women grow up without the luxury of being able to ignore men. We grow up having to be hyper vigilant and hyper aware of the men around us from our early teenage years, if not before. Uh, whether it's in public spaces whether it's in the home we learn to study and be aware of men for survival and men have the privilege of being able to ignore women and i think that's partly what we're seeing reflected there in those in those trends in literature and also in those trends in the ways in which we perceive the value of female writers. I think it it reflects our broader societal value, the societal value that we place on women. People always think this is a hysterical thing to say, but we don't treat women as human beings. There was, there was a court case last year where a man uh, found that his ex-wife was seeing a new boyfriend. And he went to the car park of her gym and assaulted her and threw her against a parked BMW so hard that it dented the the car. And in court, he was found guilty of criminal damage, but he was also found guilty of of battery. And he was told, ordered to pay his ex-wife £150. And he was ordered to pay the owner of the BMW £818. Mm. And I just think that, for me, story just sums up so clearly the value that we place on women, compared to the value that we place on inanimate objects and I think that the ripple effect of that extends throughout our whole whole society and right into the book charts and whose voices we value. And when you asked earlier what what's literature and, and what's not literary, you know it was it's a flippant answer but you know if it's written by men, people think, well, that's literary. If it's written by women, it's lit and it's just domestic and it's just about herself. It's All of this is so pervaded with the kind of sexism that is within our society and it filters everywhere.
0: That's uh, sobering. You never don't bring a good story, Laura, and you write fiction for young adults, don't you?
3: I do, yes. Um, what I, are your books that we should be buying? Uh, One is called The Burning, which is a kind of comparison between the witch trials 400 years ago and the reality of teenage girls' lives today. And one is called The Trial, which is a kind of feminist retelling of Lord of the Flies, and it looks at consent and complicity and rape culture.
0: Everyone should buy those for all of the teenagers in their life, whether male, female, or non-binary. Now, before we get Laura to give us a little bit of clop, Kate, is there anything you came to say that you didn't get to say? (laughs)
5: I think one of the most encouraging things about where we are at the moment is that books still matter because there was a time that was like, oh, you know, technology, nobody's going to read books anymore. Books are all going to go. Nobody wants that kind of thing. Nobody's got long enough to sit down and read a novel, all of this kind of thing. And what we've seen, not just because of the pandemic, but because of the way that books help you to stand in everybody's shoe, other people's shoes and all of this, is that actually being an author and being a reader and having access to more people writing, like with Women's Prize with our Discoveries programme, where thousands of people entered to receive mentoring and possible uh, agenting and advice about how to write their novel from underrepresented groups, what we see is that people still think that books are something and that you can learn something and enjoy something and be inspired and have your life improved and just get joy from books. And so I think that's worth remembering in these hyper-technological days where we're being told that everything's moving too fast. In the end, it still comes down to one person and one pen and one reader who loves it.
0: Marianne, anything you came to say you didn't get to say?
5: Yes,
6: as part of this Men Reading Women campaign, we asked former Women's Prize judges and... Uh, a whole bunch of male writers and celebrities like Salmon Rushdie and Ian McEwan and Richard Curtis to nominate their favourite book by a woman that all men should read. And we then asked people to vote on these. And 20,000 people came to the Women's Prize website and voted. And there's the top 10 essential books by women that men should read on the website. It was one by Margaret Atwood with The Handmaid's Tale. So what I'd say is if there are any men listening to this podcast, we've curated the 10 very best novels by women that you should read. And so any one of them will blow your mind. And for the women listening to this podcast, buy these books for men in your life and get them started on the habit of reading novels by women, which are fantastic.
0: Laura. Do you have anything from Klopp you can read us?
4: I totally Do You all know do. who Jurgen
0: Klopp is. Yeah. Okay. Football manager. Who, who does he manage?
4: Deborah. Who doesn't? I mean. There was a very I literary just, book about him released.
0: Our- <laughs> I heard that. Some of our listeners don't know who he is, so tell us.
4: So he is the Liverpool football manager. Um, but don't worry, you don't need to know anything about football to, to read the book. He's from Germany. Um, but he lives over here, very happily married to somebody that isn't me. And I am also very happily married, I am legally obliged to point out. And the marriage is fictional. Um,
0: <laughs> this is, so this is a fictional marriage between you and Jurgen Klopp because you saw him on television being uh, sexually sensible.
4: Very sensible. And uh, yes, it began with the tweet It's so stupid. It began with the tweet. If I ever met Jurgen Klopp, I'd say, oh, my God, if we have a baby, we should call it Clip, just so he'd raise an eyebrow at me and tell me I'm a moron, and I'd be so naked by the time he finished doing that. (laughs) And that was the first tweet, and then I thought, hey, let's do some more. So, uh It sort of developed. We'd go to Ikea and I'd be like, oh, this lamp is so cute. And he'd say, no, Laura, we are just getting the things we came here for. But then at the till, he'd let me have (laughs) a bag of dimes anyway because I'm cute. (laughs) And then we'd drive home (laughs) in our nice Volvo. (laughs) Every morning he'd eat Weetabix because it's not that sugary crap. And I'd have my Pop-Tarts and he'd roll his eyes, but not criticize out loud because he's not been to medical school, so it's not his area of expertise. (laughs) (laughs) we'd be snuggled up on the sofa and I'd say, oh, my God, babe, I saw on Twitter earlier that the government are going to, and he'd say, do you have at least two corroborating sources? <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I'd say,
4: no, but, and he'd say, well, then don't share it like it's facts, and my brow would snap off.
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, it's such a funny book. Please pick
4: up a copy of it. And your new book, what's it called? My new book is called Pivot, and if you've ever wanted to read a book about a collection of Everyday women, brilliant women who did not meet because they worked in the same office or had babies. They met via netball. Uh, if you want to read a book about that sport that we all got made to play for 15 years and then promptly left school and there was no material value in having learned netball so we'd essentially had our educational time wasted then please buy Pivot and give it a go there's so much thinking in it is the review from my husband (laughs) have you got got a paragraph you could read? oh do you know what I'm such a bad um, I'm so literary I don't have a copy here Um, (laughs) okay you can read a bit later then yeah, I'll go and grab
0: one. Um, uh, anybody else got anything to plug? Anything you'd like us to do? Read, look at, go to, vote on, stand near.
3: My book Fix the System, Not the Women came out recently, if that's possible to talk about. Although we have already talked about my other books, so don't worry.
0: If- no, no, Yeah, of course. Is the book called No Worries If Not? (laughs) Yes, it's called No Worries If Not. (laughs) Totally
3: fine. Sorry to ask. If not possible. No problem. Anyone got anything to plug, Laura Bates? (laughs) Um, My new book, Fix the System, Not the Women, has just come out and uh, looks at shifting our focus away from blaming women to the institutional misogyny that's failing us.
0: I mean, I really enjoy blaming women, so I'm not (laughs) sure this is the book for me, Uh, but I'll give it a go because I love you, Laura. Thank you. Uh, Marianne? Yeah, my book, The Authority Gap, why women are still taken
6: less seriously than men and what we can do about it, actually quite overlaps with Laura's because my message is it's not women that need fixing. It's how we perceive women and how we treat them and react to them and interact with them that needs fixing. So it's a book Mm -hmm. very much for men as well as women.
5: Wonderful. And Kate? Well, the entire Women's Prize fiction shortlist is available now from all good bookshops and one of those is the winner which is announced on Wednesday so a couple of days ago and my book Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries How Women Also Built the World is out in October but of course you can pre-order it by the bucket loads now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, It would be good to pre-order loads to give away as Christmas presents.
5: Yes exactly and then it won't be an all-male top non-fiction list. Oh, Just that's saying. a good idea. It's a feminist mm. act, ladies. <laughs> exactly.
0: So it's a feminist act to order any and all of those books and uh, give them to everyone and know for Christmas. And you've also got some YA books there for the teens in your life from Laura. Um, go to the Women's Prize for Fiction list. Uh, even go to the long list and uh, scrum up all the books in it. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you today. Uh, We're very excited to see who wins on Wednesday. Uh, If you're listening to this, you are in the future. So uh, you can uh, (laughs) find out right now. There's no waiting for you. You can just Google it and see it. If you haven't already seen it, splashed across the cover of every newspaper. Um, You're wearing a brilliant Agatha
5: Christie t-shirt, Kate. Is that a Women's Prize for Fiction t-shirt? It is a Women's Prize for Fiction t-shirt, Deborah. And uh, we have a whole range of them. Um, Fantastic. Authors: Matt Daphne de Maurier, Tony Morrison, Nora Ephron, and the mighty Queen of Crime, Agatha Christie, which is my favourite. Could you one. give
0: us a clue mm. as to how we could find such a T-shirt? Mm. <laughs> now,
5: indeed, Madame, you may go to the Women's Prize for Fiction website, and you can order. You can press one copy, uh, one you know, one T-shirt. You could buy ten T-shirts. You could buy T-shirts for everybody you know. Um, so there's, I, I think, there's maybe eight. At the moment, it's uh, soon to be more in the range. And they are, I just say, they are very um, comfortable sizes and it's very nice cotton. Well, I, I love the
0: look of the Agatha Christie one. I was obsessed with Agatha Christie when I was a teenager. I just I devoured Agatha Christie. Um, I'm a feminist, but I might get a more literary name because I want
5: people. <laughs> to be <pissed> by me. <laughs> I'll be honest with well, you. Well, you chose Toni Morrison in our list, so you should have a Toni Morrison one.
0: I absolutely oh. will get one of those. They all look fab, but they're just very, very plain. It just says Agatha Christie. Very or Toni plain, Morrison. and
5: we've done it with a company which I can't spin round without possibly falling over and losing my microphone. But it's with a company called Girls on Tops. Oh. And so there's I a nice little it's logo all at the Very
0: sustainable and ethical.
5: Very sustainable, very ethical. Um, there's they're mostly black uh, writing on white, but the there's a couple in green. Agatha Christie is also okay. Green.
0: All right, so I'm after a green Agatha Christie uh, to wear to bed, and any number of uh, Toni Morrison's to wear out. <laughs> <laughs> Could you make an Evil and War one just for me?
2: Just to wear, just, just or to just add an E on the
5: end? <laughs>
0: yeah, just to sit in my wardrobe. Uh, hiding hiding away in shame like all of his characters (laughs) closeted Um, it's been absolutely wonderful to meet all of you thank you so much for coming on The Guilty Feminist Kate, Mary and Laura thank you
6: you thank you
2: Hello, Guilty Feminists! It's your girl Kima Bob here with a special announcement. Wheel wheel, wheel! Since 2018, I've been producing a night called the Fems of Color Comedy Club. It's an amazing show that platforms comedians of color that aren't cis men. It's simple and it's great. And with the help of the Guilty Feminist family, I'm gonna be turning it into a podcast. Eee! We're going to be recording live in London in June and July, so calm down. And if you can't make it, don't worry, don't fret, honey, because soon the Fuck It Up podcast will be available everywhere you can hear the guilty Feminist. So keep your ears peeled for the hashtag fuckpod. I don't know, is is that a bad name? Anyway, it's one of my favorite things in the world to do, and I'm so excited to share it with you guys. For more information, hit up the Guilty Feminist website or at Fuck It Up on Instagram. That's FOC, y'all. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers,
4: or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com
5: to learn more. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800 333 for details. Always dive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.
0: Laura Lex is now going to read the opening paragraph of her book, Pivot.
4: So, um, this is the opening paragraph to my book. And writing a first line is a, like, uh, what do you write? So, um, here's the first thing. Uh, The sea was not expecting to be hit full force with a golf club. To be fair to Jackie, though, she hadn't been expecting to throw it either. Well, technically at the point where she was standing on the beach staring at the sea and holding a golf club with the encouraging words of Ros in her ear, by then she was half expecting to throw it, but not really. Jackie wasn't the golf club throwing type. She'd barely ever looked at these golf clubs before Ros had loaded them into the boot. They were long and heavier than she'd expected. ''Doesn't golf last for hours?'' she said absently to Roz. ''How the hell do you lug these around all day without dying?'' ''Caddies,'' said Ros, looking up from removing furry covers from the lumpy clubs. ''Is that them?'' Jackie nodded at the little golf sock things. ''No, these are...'' Well, do you know? I don't know what these are. Some sort of warmers.'' ''Why would you want the clubs to be warm? I don't know. Maybe it makes the ball go further.'' So what's a golf caddy? Jackie shook her head, losing their thread. This was a common side effect of talking to Roz. It's the person who carries your clubs around for you so you don't get tired, like a a servant. Oh, Lord, no wonder it's so popular with men, someone else doing the hard work while you swan around pretending you're the dog's bollocks. Jackie launched another iron hard out to sea and heard the splash as the lengthy pole slapped the surface of the dark water. Lovely.
0: I'm intrigued to find out what happens next.
4: Wow, they're throwing um, golf clubs in the sea. I was
0: terrible at netball as a child. Oh, uh, yeah, mean, genuinely terrible. Like I can't catch. I wasn't interested in throwing. It was, and oh. and it always it's like, oh, you've travelled, you've travelled, because you take a foot off. I liked basketball because mm. I liked the speed of it, but my mother didn't like me playing it because she thought I'd get knocked out or get my teeth <laughs> knocked out or something. I mean. Ludicrous.
4: I think like netball, this whole book developed from I was emceeing at a gig in Guildford and a netball team were there on a night out and I just started improvising some stuff on how ridiculous netball is uh, in terms of how it's not a very instinctual game to play and then how frustrating it was that you spent so long learning it only for there to be zero job opportunities in it. And the boys are all learning football and then just get handed this cultural touchstone, Mm. like this brilliant thing that you can have conversations about, you can play casually and netball doesn't exist like that. So then that turned into a proper bit of stand-up and then I turned it into a TV show which got optioned a few times but channels just wouldn't pick it up. They were going, well... 'Cause my lead character's fifty-eight and and they kept saying, Can she be younger? We need younger people watching television and I was saying, No, it's a different story if she's younger and you know, oh well, you know, it's a bit nice. There's not really a a big drama, a big tragedy. And I'm there going, Well, she's fifty eight and her husband walks out on her, like, do you not think that's a huge drama? Like, and so T V wouldn't make it. And so mm. I then when somebody said, have you got an idea for a novel? I said, well, yeah, I've got these brilliant women that have just been stuck in this script that TV are too stupid to touch. And the book world, thankfully, went, yeah, we'll, we'll make it.
0: Fantastic. I mean, the thing with books is the budget is only limited by the reader's imagination. Mm. So with TV, it's like, oh, we've got to get all these locations and all these actors and all this crew. And with books, it's like. Right we're going to buy this paper yeah and then we're going to put your words on it and we hope the paper's more valuable with your words on it and sometimes yeah. it isn't and the books get pulped but most of the time over a period of time they can sell end up selling the paper for more than they bought it for and then the rest of the budget is just in the in the uh, in the imagination of the reader and that's what's and the and the writer and that's just what's wonderful about books
4: That's a really lovely way of putting it. They put your words on it and hope the paper is worth more. I like that. Mm.
0: Yeah, a publisher that uh, published a book of mine once about improvisation uh, said that to me. He said, we're really in the paper business. (laughs) We're buying paper and we're hoping to make the paper more valuable with these words on. Kathy Letts has been on our podcast before. She is an Australian icon. She (laughs) is somebody who was writing fiction even as a teenager. She had a very successful uh, book and film out as a teenager called Puberty Blues, and she has filled our shelves with joy and laughter since then. Uh, She's never stopped writing, and uh, her books are much, much loved. So, Kathy, we've just been talking to the people from the Women's Prize for Fiction You've started a new campaign. Can you tell us what it is?
1: Well, every time I read a a book that stars a woman my age, I'm 63, she's either, you know, so eaten up with loneliness and unfulfilled longings that she sort of withers away in some dismal flat and gets eaten by her cats (laughs) or she's she gets murdered you know because she's she because she's nags too much or she needs a come up and you know you there's you can never um read any crime fiction without some dog walker hitting their toe and a bit of compost and you know there's this woman who this older woman who just passed her amused by date and i never see women my age who are having fun in their 60s and 70s, you know, and just carping the hell out of Diem and just being the kind of feisty, formidable, fabulous um, heroine of their own story. They're all just kind of sitting at home knitting their own bus passes and just sort Ugh. of, you know, um, giving in to despair and loneliness. And, and and so I thought, well, as I kind of invented chick lit with Puberty Blues and Girls Night Out and the Llama Party, etc., and then I kind of invented mummy lit with Fetal Attraction and Mad Cows and nip lit with nip and tuck I thought I want to get a new genre for for women my age that that has them sort of aging disgracefully um and the name I came up with was I don't give a shit lit because (laughs) (laughs) because the wonderful thing that happens to you after menopause you girls are far too young to know these things but your testosterone drops and your, sorry, your estrogen drops and your testosterone comes up a little bit. And so for the first time in your life, you kind of get a little bit more selfish and a little bit, little bit sort of more um bolshy and, and you can put yourself first for the first time in your life. Um, and I want to reflect that when life-affirming fiction for older women and just show women my age, you know, swinging off a chandelier with a toy boy between their teeth <laughs> or having adventures and finding finding great solidarity with their female friends. It doesn't have to necessarily be, a, you know, a romance they're looking for. You know, it's great if some knight and Shining Amani comes along, but we're also happy to stand on our own two sequined Birkenstocks. So, you know, I want to celebrate female friendship, the sisterhood, and just all the good things about getting older as a woman. So that's the genre I want to kickstart. But, of course, no publisher will take me up on it because they're like, oh, no, women like that don't exist. You know, women don't want to read stories about, about you know, women having frivolity and fun at that age. And I think they're so behind um, what's really happening in life. You know, I think they haven't picked up on the fact that that you know this new baby boomers have redefined every age we've lived in you know and we're now going to redefine getting older especially women because we have this rocket fuel of hrt um you know which is just like it's like like a hormonal macchiato mm-hmm. so we're ready to take on the world and yet publishers just refuse to believe that there's a market out there and they they're so crazy because you know mostly most books are uh, most fiction is read by women, especially older women, because we've got more time. You know, our kids have left home. We've got, we've got, um, uh, we've got the money to spend. <laughs> so, why they're not tapping into this market, I just don't understand.
0: And so, what can we do to help the campaign? Can we write <laughs> to publishers saying yes! we'd like to see more? Uh, books published by and about older women? I think it's a
1: fantastic idea that we had, had a hashtag, I don't give a shit lit, saying that, you know, women women do want to age disgracefully and have fun and, and, and find something life-affirming. I mean, look, the sexism that older women face is so extraordinary. I mean, hopefully my generation will help break down these barriers for you as, as you come up, as we have in every other area of life. But for example, just the other day, I went to the doctor for routine blood tests and I said, Hey, while I'm here, should I get a pap smear? I'm 63, right? Should I get a pap smear? And she said, Oh no, the NHS don't give pap smears to women over 62 because they're not having sex. And if they are, it's with the one partner. So by the time I, I winched my jaw up off the floor <laughs> and point, I said, pointed out to her that the majority of divorces um, in Britain and Australia actually are now initiated by women and they're mostly silver separations it's you know older women are just saying well you know dear God from honeymoon to tomb is so long I think we might have you know it might be time that we you know had, had a, another a second act yeah. so most of my women friends I mean oh my God even though they were quite catty about mouse pad pairings in the past they're on dating internet sites you know they're they're hooking up with guys they went out with in their teens on Facebook
0: you know they are out there having a lot of sexual fun.
5: Yeah. And for, yet they,
0: I mean, for a lot of women when they say till death do us part they don't know they're going to live so long. Well, that's that's it's, right.
1: it's it's a, a long, long time. Long. It's a long yeah. time to find someone's anecdotes that interesting. <laughs> and yeah. also as I think Deb we've talked about this before but there's a huge disparity too about what older women and older men want. Because of course as men age the opposite happens to them their their testosterone goes down and their estrogen comes up. So they want to sit at home and nest. You know, and they start wow. crying in the movies and things. They change completely. And, and women are like, oh, you know, I've nested. I've, I've buttered those 4,000 acres of toast and cooked 4 million, <laughs> you know, s- s- schools of salmon. I, I want to go out and climb Everest and go up the Amazon and
0: have fun and adventure, etc. We know that neither women nor men are a monolith and hormones can go up as well as down. Uh, And of course, there are many trans women, men and non-binary people who will be listening who will have had a different experience. Um, So you're talking sort of broadly in trends that these things happen. Exactly. we We can observe some of those trends, but there are plenty of us who are outliers as well so
1: there is there is a big societal shift that we haven't really addressed that's happening to the older generation and I do think in publishing women want to see that reflected they want to see women our age having adventure and and you know as I said before for the first time putting themselves first so I guess you know I hate the term chick lit by the way even though I say I kind of invented it it makes me furious to think that um you know, men who write first-person funny contemporary fiction get compared to Chekhov. Where well, we get compared to, you know, Chickoff. We we get cupcakes on the covers and stuff like that. Um, but I think if we are going to have a new genre, we could also call it not chick but chocolate. Old chocolate, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Chuck is an old. I mean, I don't know if they use that term here, but it means an older chicken. Um, so yeah. So I'm really on the warpath about saying that women were just refusing to just um sort of be shelved because publishers Bernadine Everesto said the other day to where are all the older female authors because what happens if you're not if you're not young and and feckined, basically you're fucked you know the publishers want to promote young women who look good in in you know in the in the the culture section you know lying across a, a pile of novels which of course we all did stuff crazy stuff like that but they're not interested in promoting um, women my age. So, so many of my wonderful female author friends who were very successful, if the publishers don't put in money into their campaigns, if they don't promote them, they just kind of wither on the publishing vine. And then it's a vicious circle because the publishers say, well, I'm not going to publish your next book because your last book didn't sell. But unless there's that publishing momentum behind you, how do you compete? So we know we've heard a lot about older actresses complaining that there's never any parts for them. But it's exactly the same sexist ageism is permeating the publishing world. And, you know, I think we need to make a fuss about it and say, you know, we've just refused to be to be shelved, you know yeah we want to be shelved on the top bestseller list we don't want to be you know shelved and put away in mothballs at the back of the bookshop
0: so we should tweet our publishers and write to them um about i don't give a shit lit
1: ha- hashtag i don't give a shit lit yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah say we are interested in stories from old women they've got a lot of life lived they're doing exciting stuff in their later life and we want to hear about it
1: well, exactly. You know, we've had the heartbreaks, the divorces, the raise the kids. We've had the promotions. We've had the betrayals. We've had the breakdowns. We've had the adventures. We we have a lot to say. And we yeah. and I know there's an audience out there who want and to hear it. men don't put it. Out to
0: pasture like that at all. Like I, oh. I don't see that with men. I think as men get older, they get more book deals and they, they're seen as senior figures, the wise men, the – Literary really lions, lucky, you know, to be working with them and their yeah. icons, and yeah. So they're uh, seen as men
1: of letters, you know, literary lions, and all that sort of stuff. Well, we're literary lionesses. Just let us roar.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we will. Uh, we will certainly nudge our pu- our favourite publishers and tell them and ask them who 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 are you publishing this year? Who's over sixty? And where can I buy those books?
1: fantastic yeah and don't forget we're making the world better for when you arrive at our age so every yeah. woman should get behind us
0: that's a great point kathy kathy Lett, as always it has been an exquisite pleasure uh you can buy all and any of kathy Lett's books what's your latest the latest is called hrt husband replacement therapy <laughs> or till death or little light maiming do us part Excellent. I read it and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Aww. It's available in Australia, but not available in the UK. Is that true? That's
1: right. Because my publishers here are saying women don't want this kind of funny, life affirming fiction. They want, you know, serious, you know, depressing Oof. kind of, yeah, yeah, like misery So If you lit. do want to
0: read it and you live in Britain, uh, what's the publisher we can contact to say, could you please print this here? <laughs> I think
1: Penguin Random House.
0: And just say, hey, have you got Cathy Letts HRT? We've been looking forward to it coming out. Yes. I haven't seen it on the shelves yet and maybe they'll publish it.
1: Because we need uh, some
0: more laughter lines, you know, read between my lines, you know. <laughs> totally. If they're not marketing you as much as you get older and they kind it. of let you dwindle, maybe they're just letting you get more literary and less commercial. Maybe they're, <laughs> they're, they've, got, they've got ideas that you're going uh, to become James Joyce. Well,
1: why don't we mix commercial fiction with literary fiction for women and, and just call it Clip Lit? Oh that, that would rub me up the right way. Yes.
4: I love the idea though that you are you're a commercial success in Australia but literary in the UK.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
4: well darling,
1: I do like to straddle. It's my favourite position.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, Kathy Lett. You're incredible.
1: Lovely to see you guys. Bye. Bye-bye.
2: So I knew I wanted an abortion.
6: I could feel myself becoming radicalized images of myself are floating around the site.
2: i'm in a polyamorous relationship
4: welcome back listeners it's matilda and helena from media storm the investigative podcast from the house of the guilty feminist
2: and now we're back for series two where we'll be talking to people with lived experience of abortion
4: polyamory radicalization the effects of climate change and that's just some of the topics in store so here's a little taste of what to expect Next, on MediaStorm. It's
2: hell, it's absolute hell. It is
4: already killing a very, very
0: large
2: number of people. Women can still face up to life imprisonment. We have a lot of politicians still happy to bury their head in the sand. We weren't talking about anorexia, less alone bulimia. I've just accepted that one day something not very nice might happen to me. That's a really tough decision. It wasn't. It's not solved. It's a puzzle. Hear our stories. We are the experts. We are the ones who have lived this. It's really simple. Just just present both sides of the story. i might have a beard. I might be a different skin
4: tone than someone else. But that doesn't mean we don't bleed red. All of us. The
0: Guilty Feminist is provided exclusively from Acast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.